Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You remember John Tunstall? Remember the stories he tell us about the playing Fantan? Someone runs up to him and says, hey, the world is coming to an end. And the first one says, well, I best go to the mission and pray. And the second one says, well, hell, I'm going to go buy me a case of mezcal and six whores. And the third one says, well, I shall finish the game. I shall finish the game, Doc. And hello, welcome to Unequal Sequel. I am Dave, and I'm one of the two hosts of this stupendous podcast. And I'm Rich, and I'm the other host of this stupendous podcast. Think of me as Hardy to Dave's Laurel, because we both look great in bowler hats. <laughs> we do. Yeah. You know what? I really do. I re- I'm a hat person. The premise of Unequal Sequel is very simple. We ask our guests their best ever sequel, their worst ever sequel, and finally their dream sequel. And we often drift off course and talk about other things as well, not just sequels, other movies, sometimes TV, sometimes just life. It's nice. It's a little rambly chat. It's lovely. Uh, we should also point out we do do spoilers. So if we mention a film... That you have not seen, mm. you know, go get your juicer, blend up some fruit, come back, and then carry on listening. Okay? Nice, nice. On today's episode, we are joined by Michael Marden. Michael is a podcast producer extraordinaire. You may recognize him from the Quickly Kevin 90s football podcast with Josh Widdicombe and others. Brilliant. And possibly the biggest podcast in the country right now, Parenting Hell, with Josh Widdicombe and Rolf Beckett. He's the producer of that. So we're very excited to sit down with Michael and chat all things sequels with him. These are Michael Marden's Unequal Sequels. Enjoy. Well, the first question is quite an easy to get your brain working. And this might be quite good because I just listened to an episode of Quickly Kevin. And you said you have you have a scrapbook of all your first time you went to the cinema and stuff. Yes. Do you remember the first sequel you got excited about? It would be quite late, I think, in terms of getting excited about a sequel. I mean, the first one that springs to mind, it's, which is very late, is probably Jurassic Park 2. Brilliant. I, I mean, I saw sequels at the cinema earlier than that and sort of certainly saw sequels on VHS earlier than that. But I think Jurassic Park, so I would have been 13 when that came out. That's probably the first film that was going to be released in the cinema when I had kind of come of age, if you like, mm. as, a, as a film lover, as a young budding kind of cineast. I mean, obviously, I was incredibly disappointed when I left the cinema having... <laughs> watch that uh, i mean i have i don't think i've probably watched it since actually since the cinema but i i remember thinking i can't even pretend that 
I liked that. Everything that I loved about the first Jurassic Park, which is tight and lean and exciting and it's filled with not just the brilliant set pieces that Spielberg is so good at, but all the characterization, the humor, all of that's there. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's fantastic set pieces in two because, you know, Spielberg knows how to direct action. You don't lose that. But it felt like everything else was missing and everything else was lacking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it definitely was. So did you buy into the build up? Were you proper excited beforehand? Did you uh, pre-book your tickets? Did you buy like the jumper? Because their marketing went crazy for the second one. Yeah, I, I didn't have as much of the merch, but I was definitely like, so I'd say 93 to 97, 98 before mm. I went to film school. Film was my, it was my personality. I hadn't developed one yet. So it was that kind of badge of pride. I am the things I like and movies are the things that I like the most. And here are the films that I love. This is who I am. So yeah, I was consuming every magazine. You know, I was of an age where I could just about get away with going to not Blockbuster, but the kind of smaller regional video shops on the Isle of Wight, convincing them that I was 18, even though I was only 15 or 16. So I could rent out all of these films that I'd read about in Neon and Empire and places like that. And then watching, you know, Taxi Driver for the first time, Mean Streets for the first time, late at night in my loft room. So yeah, I, I was fully injected into my veins kind of, yeah it was like crack yeah we quite often talk about on this podcast people's cinematic awakenings mm. and my, mine was about 99 great yeah which one was yours would you say not to make you feel old my cinematic awakening um you're still going through it yeah still doing it now <laughs> mate you know you know me i still haven't yeah, seen yeah. the godfather part three yet um <laughs> i guess probably my i was about eight or nine and my gran took me to the cinema to watch the third man and I thought, oh, it's a black and white film. It's going to be boring. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I think that was probably the time that I was like, this is really cool. I really like this. But yeah, I get the kind of Jurassic Park 2 thing because Jurassic Park at the cinema was incredible. And there was no way that Jurassic Park 2 was ever going to be as good as Jurassic Park. I was so excited for it, though. I was absolutely buzzing for Jurassic Park 2. Spielberg was still in, in charge of it. I mean, Jeff Goldblum was back. Raptors was still at that point. Gave me nightmares. And then, um, yeah, it was, uh, well, let's let's be frank, it's pretty rubbish, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's very, yeah, very underwhelming. I'm trying to think what the first sequel I would have seen. I, I have a feeling it was Home Alone 2 might have been the first yes. sequel I ever mm. saw at the cinema. I was probably equally as excited about that, but I would have only been, I was going to say, 12 years old. And it's not a film that I have a lot of affection for apart from the uh, it's set in new york and you know it's one of those ones where you watch it now at christmas and you're like oh that was fun yeah but it's very much through the kind of rose-tinted glasses of, of nostalgia were you to watch that objectively for the first time you'd be like that's just not very good <laughs> Ouch. oh i could feel dave grimacing from here he loves Home oh Lady. is he a big fan <laughs> yeah, i love Home Lady, but probably for the reasons you just said i'm pretty sure it's one of my first sequels that i saw as well and i, I absolutely love it it still makes me laugh when harry gets hit by bricks Still work myself. Um, <laughs> is there a scene in Jurassic Park 2 that you like? Like you can hold on to? I remember, is that, it's, it's the one with the cracked windscreen, isn't it? Where the, where the truck is hanging over the cliff. That's pretty good. Again, Spielberg knows how to direct an action sequence in a set piece. That's my one abiding memory. And the fact that uh, it's Vince Vaughn, isn't it? Who's it is, sort yeah. Of steps in, it. yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, I liked him in Swingers. I, I really don't <laughs> like him in this. <laughs> How do you feel about the rest of the uh, the Jurassic Park series, the Jurassic World franchise, and uh, where it's going? I didn't mind the first reboot in the same way that I didn't mind the first Star Trek reboot, the first Star Wars, because 
I felt like that all of them and, and that Jurassic Park one probably just about got the balance right in terms mm. of kind of fan servicing and creating a new world. I hated the next one. I thought it was awful. It was the theme park version of a movie that you dread all of these big Hollywood films will be. And I've got, yeah. I mean, I'll still watch the next one, but I've got zero interest in it at all. With the legacy characters, when they're bringing it full circle, when they're all coming back. It just feels grubby. It just feels like, guys, <laughs> I'm going to give you my money anyway. Don't also ruin it for everyone else. My biggest issue is sequels. And we'll come to this with some of my other choices is that I don't mind if a sequel is shit. Because more often than not, they are, yeah. especially when it's not the same creative crew, you know, writers, directors, everyone sort of goes away and does different things. The thing I can't stand is when a sequel diminishes the original. Yeah. And the quickest way to do that is to fucking get people who loved making the original phoning it in. Yeah. Jeff Goldblum will look dead behind the eyes in anything he does to do with <laughs> Jurassic Park that it sort of breaks my heart because there's so much energy and there's so much fun and mischief in his performance in Jurassic Park. Every time I see him do a version of that, it's like watching a boxer who's punch drunk have one too many fights. I'm like, dude, you're doing your career brain damage. Like, just walk away, man. <laughs> I feel that's what he's like in real life now, though. He's just a parody of himself. I think he's buying into the concept of Jeff Goldblum, his jazz playing maniac. But he looks like he's having fun as Jeff Goldblum. I don't yeah. think he will look like he's having fun in however many Jurassic Park. I mean, hopefully they'll just kill him off. Oh, really? I think this will be the last one, wouldn't it? Just you saying that just made me think of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, talking of oh, dead behind the eyes characters coming back and hating it. I mean, let's just not even open that fucking fridge. <laughs> <laughs> So it's today's Tuesday. What is your best sequel today? Because, you know, it's a hard choice to make. Well, I picked, this is quite a controversial choice, I think. Um, yes, it is. And slight caveat or caveats is that obviously this isn't the best sequel of all time. <laughs> it's probably The Godfather Part 2 or The Empire Strikes Back. Honourable mentions to Terminator 2, Aliens, Toy Story 3, Silence of the Lambs, technically yeah, yeah. a sequel, also a masterpiece. Yeah, I'll allow it. But what I figured was that a lot of people are either going to have already talked about some of these films or certainly will the more episodes you do. You'd be surprised. <laughs> well, have people not covered those already? Nobody has mentioned The Godfather Part 2 yet. Or, or, or No one's picked no. Empire Strikes Back yet either. As their best. Oh my, oh my God, literally my favourite too. And I just thought, I haven't got time to listen to every single episode. I don't want to reach it. <laughs> well, okay. Now, now I'm sat here telling your listeners that the best sequel is Young Guns 2 and I feel like a complete idiot. <laughs> <laughs> obviously it's the godfather part two guys obviously and empire strikes back however uh, for this but to you but to me yeah there was there was a period when i was younger no so this is sort of pre-peak 93 to 99 this is when i was still kind of hiring vhs's from the local store pre-blockbuster on the isle of white because we were sort of late to adopt so these were still the local kind of mum and pop video stores where mm -hmm. you'd go in and you'd basically be faced with the choice of some Steven Seagal actioner like Nico or Hard to Kill or like License to Blow, whatever nonsense it was called. For a little while, there was sort of George Donald Van Damme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the X-rated one. Um, <laughs> but then I remember hiring Young Guns 2 out with my mate and watching it, and it genuinely blew my mind because I had never seen a Western before, or certainly not from memory, like perhaps some kind of old like John Wayne, John Ford Westerns around my nan and granddad's as a kid, but they didn't resonate with me because you know you're seven eight nine years old who gives a crap about yeah. some old john ford western but this it was just fun it felt tonally unlike anything i'd ever seen the action was good 
for a 12 year old I, you know i'm not saying that now as a 41 year old but it was kind of <laughs> witty it was violent it had a real kind of propulsion and momentum to it and there was a period for about two years where me and my best friend at the time it was our favorite film we would just watch it endlessly we would quote it endlessly but the main reason i've picked it is because it was a kind of gateway film for me in that i now love westerns like westerns are probably my favorite genre once upon a time in the west the wild bunch background billy the kid unforgiven like i absolutely love westerns and this film was probably the catalyst of that mm. passion it was the one that made me go away and i didn't find those films until a few years later you know i would go and then watch sort of tombstone the first young guns oh, all the westerns that followed i love tombstone yeah I talk all day about val kilmer's performance in tombstone he's just in a different movie altogether um but this this is a film that i think genuinely genuinely changed the sort of trajectory of my taste in films so for me it's kind of like again the best used loosely the best sequel for me because it's probably the sequel that has had the most influence on my film tastes subsequently i like to think that you went to film school because of young guns too <laughs> well that and goodfellas probably were the two wow the two lightning rods That's cool. yeah yeah when i watched goodfellas for the first time it genuinely was like oh right this is cinema i remember yeah, thinking yeah. Why is that so much better than anything else I've ever seen? And then sort of getting a Halliwell's film guide and pouring over, who is this Scorsese guy? <laughs> like, what else has he done? But anyway, Goodfellas doesn't have a sequel. Thank God. Yeah, Young, Gun- Young Guns 2 was a, was a real fork in the road. I mean, had either of you guys seen it before I uh, recommended it? No. Yeah, I, I, well, I had. A little bit like you, I wasn't really into the Westerns as a kid, but my, my dad has always really liked Westerns. And so Young Guns and kind of and Young Guns 2 kind of become a movie we could all watch together because my dad would like it and I'd like it. And then that sort of set us off then to watching things like The Good, The Bad and The Ugly and then moving on to things like Dirty Harry and stuff that my, you know, movies that my dad really liked. So yeah, it's kind of, it's got a little bit of a special place in my heart as well, Young Guns, but you've not seen it before, Dave. No, this is, the, this is the first time. What was your take? Was that fresh eyes, Dave? Like from the moment the score kicks in, after you sort of meet the old man, Brushy Bill Roberts, who's allegedly Billy the Kid, there's this sort of lovely moment where uh, he's being interviewed by um, Brad Whitford, who then becomes Bradley Whitford of, of the West Wing fame and Get Out and stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. quite fun watching this film, seeing all of the faces who yeah. didn't have a career when this film came out. <laughs> But suddenly you're like, oh, right, it's him. Oh, yeah, God, it's him. But the the moment where he sort of sets up that little, uh, the bookend of the film, and he goes, I think the line is like, you got any scars? And it pushes in on on an aged Emilio Estevez's face. And it's sort of like sparkly blue eyes are remembering the past. And there's this cut of sort of over the headshot looking over a canyon and uh, Silvestri's score kicks in. I just had goosebumps remembering the music from that film. Is it because you're a big John Bond Jovi fan? (laughs) I mean, I, I think this soundtrack's good. I'm not going to go out. I'm not going to die on the John Bon Jovi hill, that's for sure. A Blaze of Glory is a fucking good track, by the way. It is a so, good tune. Yeah. Academy Award nominated Blaze of Glory. Was it? Yeah, it's an <laughs> oh. absolute banger. John Bon Jovi could be an Academy Award winner. Wow. But <laughs> I can't separate the memory of loving that shot and that sequence and then this film as a kid from watching it now like literally yeah. i finished watching it about an hour before this record so i was really interested to know if one of you hadn't watched it and what your sort of objective modern take on it was well allow me um first question just a quick question did i have to see young guns one before this to really like the characters uh do you think that would benefit <sighs> me if i did i think it would have probably helped a bit with their yeah, relationships probably. and the characterization 
I think there's an argument that maybe Billy the Kid comes across as a bit more of a prick if you're yep. only watching this this film. Absolutely. Just gets all his mates killed because he's an idiot. <laughs> I found him very selfish. Yes. It's a hard one because I could see why you like it if you watched it when you're little because it's like a, a like a Diet Coke of a Western film because it's kind of fun. It's got this Bon Jovi rift that keeps sounding like it's going to go into time after time for some reason to me. I had written exactly that. It was it was like Duran Duran and Cindy Lauper had done a duet. And I mean, I mean that in a good way. <laughs> it's bizarre, isn't it? And I yeah. really enjoyed, like you said, the faces pop up. I, Vigo Mortensen's, I, well, because I'm a massive Lord of the Rings geek, that I thought, I was like, oh my God, it's Vigo. And then the Robert Nepper, who was the... The guy who got shot, well, a lot of people get shot, but the, the sheriff who he pushes out of the the saloon is Teabag from Prison Break. Oh, really? Yeah. I was like, I know this face and that voice. Well, he, um, the director of this did um, a lot of second unit work on the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Jeff Murphy. He's, oh, there you he's, go. He's, yeah, it plugs into your, your world. Well, now I'm interested, Michael. Let's talk about it more. Um, <laughs> no, I did enjoy it. It was fun. It kept in my head, I keep thinking, was this the same year as Three Musketeers? As in that era of the was it what do they call themselves? It wasn't the frat pack, was it? Was it the the, the brat pack? That was yeah. sorry, not the frat pack. Um, yeah, with the young Christian Slater, who was a lot of fun. Always enjoyed him. Kiefer Sutherland at this point was, I think, would have been absolutely massive, wouldn't he? Yeah, I think this is probably around. Uh, I think it's pre kind of flatliners. They were all on sort of various roads of ascendancy. I mean, the first film had. Obviously, Charlie Sheen in it. You haven't seen it, but Charlie Sheen was in it as well. Um, yeah. He gets killed. I was in that expecting first one. Charlie Sheen to be in this one because that's what I kind of I think when I think Young Guns. I think the brothers. Obviously, he must have died in the first one. Spoiler. <laughs> He's the big kind of casualty at the end of the first Young Guns. I didn't like. Yeah, I didn't like him. I did not like Billy the Kid. I was kind of like, come on, someone shoot the fucker. <laughs> <laughs> How is this guy? keeps surviving all these like shenanigans and he keeps going and all his mates and he doesn't really care when they seem to die he just keeps going on i didn't really warm to but i can see how you loved it i mean it's definitely that era i feel like i was missing a trick we're not watching young guns one and it's one of those films i'm pretty sure i went oh yeah i've seen young guns and young guns too uh, i hadn't definitely not never seen it so sorry <laughs> no i mean i it's not it's not a film i would defend like i said <laughs> Really wish I'd pick the Godfather part two, um, but but also I feel like uh, this early in the the choices, you've really set me up as someone who doesn't know what he's doing by me having to pick Young Guns two first. <laughs> I like it. I, I like it. I think it's a great choice. The whole point of this podcast is you pick choices that mean something to you. You don't have to be objectively the best one in the best film in the world. You know, we've had some really weird choices. Mm-hmm. And Young, Young Guns two is a great shout. How many times did you watch it in that first rent? That's always the first market. Two, two or three, but it would often be um, like I had by my best friend at the time. It was one of those ones where his dad would rent edgier movies, your, your Commandos, your Robocops, your Beverly Hills oh, Cops, yeah. stuff like that. And then um, he would be at work, and we would sneak round the next day, usually you know during school holidays or half term, and see what he had that we weren't supposed to be watching. But this was one of the ones where we had gone and actually picked it because I remember vividly. I don't know if you had this sort of in video shops in the 80s and 90s where it wasn't like Blockbuster where they had these huge kind of outlet mall size ones where you had the videos in their full cases. In the smaller shops, which were almost kind of like corner shops, they had uh, decanted all of the paper sleeves of the VHSs and Mm -hmm. folded them into these like really thin kind of like flip file ones where you had to kind of like flip through like it was vinyl. So you'd get like sort of 50 films in a row, but you could only see the front of whichever one you had flipped forward 
And I remember flipping through and being really taken by these sort of like young stars pointing their guns down the screen. It just felt so kind of fresh and exciting. Yeah, we were talking about that the other day, how exciting it was when going to a video store and how the, certain films they only had like certain amount of copies of. So if yeah. you didn't get there early enough in the evening, there was no chance. And you'll yeah. have to rely on your like third or fourth choice. So when you get back to your, like, your house, you're like, did you get it? You're like, no. Did you get your second choice? No. No. Yeah. <laughs> I got young guns too. <laughs> <laughs> you like Westerns, right? <laughs> yeah. Back then it was, um, we were allowed to rent like one film a week. So the stakes, the pressure on that film being good was so high that when you got mm. a dud, I'm pretty sure there were times as a preteen where I had cried because my film choice was so bad and I was so disappointed. <laughs> but then conversely, Sorry. there were times when I remember I saw True Romance for the first time by accident because basically I wanted to watch Reservoir Dogs. I'd heard about Reservoir Dogs and they just didn't have it because it wasn't out in the UK yet. It's still sort of been banned or hadn't been released. And the guy behind the counter was like, look, I know you're not old enough, but he wrote this. You should give it a go. And I was just oh, like, oh, true romance. What is it? A love story? Ugh. Rented it and obviously absolutely blew my mind. So that was the kind of the other flip side of that lottery of not having everything you wanted at your disposal. I did something very similar with Pulp Fiction. Uh, coming out of the video shop as a, as a 13, 14 year old with Pulp Fiction and getting home watching it going, this this is not for me. <laughs> this, is, like, this is for grown ups. <laughs> Would you watch a Young Guns free if they did it? Oh, a hundred percent. If they found a way to reboot it, I'd be there. Mm. I'd be front and center of the IMAX. I read about the the accident that they nearly killed. What's his face in this film? What was it? Um, Lou Diamond Phillips. Yeah, when he had a, a horse run away and he had the rope round his neck and nearly died. Yes. Yeah, and I think they engineered, there's a scene in it where um, Christian Slater stabs him with a knife in the arm, and actually they wrote that in to cover the, the cast that he then had to carry on his arm for the rest of the shooting. Oh. Yeah, you have to appreciate that. Most, like nowadays, mostly be CGI riding horses, but in Young Guns too, it seems to be all actual riding horses. And when they jumped down the hill, I couldn't work out how they got the horses to actually roll down the hills. It looked like it was... A bit iffy. Probably just shoved some horses down a hill, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> just got the owners and go, you guys just take a walk. You don't want to be here for this. <laughs> they would have done that bit in uh, like in Terminator 2 with the helicopter. They went, yeah, if you just uh, want to go get a coffee, I'm just going to fly this helicopter under a bridge. And uh, yeah, they're probably the same thing. It was like, yeah, just, just turn your back and I'm just going to shove this horse down a hill. Multiple horses <laughs> down a hill. Yeah. <laughs> I was really surprised that when I watched it back again, I was like, I really recognise Pat Garrett. Where do I recognise him from? And he's the guy He's the guy from CSI. It's uh, William Peterson, who's like the, the main guy in CSI. Yeah, well, he's also he's, he's in um, Manhunter, the Michael Mann original um, yeah, Animal Lecter movie. Oh, he plays yeah. the detective in that as well. Yeah, and it's got um, Alan Ruck in this as well, who's from in Succession. Yes. He's the older brother in Succession. Like, there's a few faces and you just think, oh, I, I know that person somewhere. James Colburn's in it as well. I thought that yeah. was good casting. Well, that's a lovely little cameo, but it's one of those appearances where you go, oh, that's acting. Oh, right. That's someone who can actually act <laughs> yeah. against Seesaw, against a Brat Pack. It reminded me of that scene in... Um, Wayne's World 2. Yes, yeah, Wayne's World 2 with Charlton Heston. Yes, yeah. yeah. And Charlton Heston turns up. It was very much like, no, come on, guys. And then he, he gives a performance. You're like, oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I remember now. That's, that's good acting. <laughs> that's exactly what I thought as well. Wayne's World 2 is exactly where my brain went to. What is your most disappointing sequel? So you went in with really high hopes and then you came out disappointed. Not your worst sequel, 
but disappointing. I mean, I don't want to double down on the Matrix, but I'm not sure I felt as big a dip in expectation versus reality. As in Reloaded? Should we start with Reloaded? Yeah, let's start with Reloaded. And we won't talk about it for too long because I've got a lot to say about the other one. Although essentially they are one film that's been chopped in half, which is a a big part of a lot of the problems with the third act film that Mm -hmm. is Revolutions. Yeah, I'd say that's the one that I probably went in... Really high. Yeah, I mean, I, I loved the first Matrix. I'd say that 18 months prior to that, everything had been about Star Wars. It mm. was all about The Phantom Menace. I'm a big Star Wars fan or a big fan of the original trilogy. I'd waited my whole life to sort of see a dream sequel or prequel. And then from nowhere, this little sort of sci-fi film from the guys who made Bound just crept up and changed the game. And because that film is so kind of brilliantly ambiguous, like the ending and what it's about, is sort of so much of it is left open to your interpretation. I think it's really effective as a result. Mm. And then the second one comes along, rather than being a question or posing a question about what it is to be, you know, human and are we a power, all of those things, all of that sort of like fairly entry level philosophical debate. This film answers that and the next one beyond that answers it, but it's not an answer that you want because it completely (laughs) undermines everything that you thought the first film was about. And I think it makes you look stupid for loving the first film as much. Mm. So I, I'd say that second Matrix was probably or equally the most disappointed. Yeah. But I'd say the expectations were higher for that one because Revolutions, at least, I'd, I'd been punched in the gut by Reloaded. So I kind of knew a second hit was coming. I was just hoping that maybe I was wrong. I dragged a lot of people to go see Reloaded because I was like, it's the it's the sequel to The Matrix. The Matrix, guys. It's yeah. going to be brilliant. <laughs> we went to a midnight screening. I was like, it's going to be well worth it. You're going to absolutely love it. And then they did not love it. And they, everyone got really angry for me when it was like three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and I was like, I'm really sorry. I thought it was going to be much better than that. I mean, the other one that does come to mind, but I think we have to exclude it. And I think you guys have touched on it is um, Anchorman 2. But I think comedy is so difficult to do as as a sequel. And I think some of the reasons why comedy is difficult also feed into my issue with the Matrix sequels is that the moment something becomes self-aware, it's impossible Mm. to recreate what made the original so good because you're not running on instinct anymore. You're not thinking, I trust my judgment that this is good. I don't know if it's good. The moment you've got an audience response and reaction that tells you what worked because it's become part of the kind of cultural lexicon, you know, people are quoting it back at you. And comedy is such a fragile thing that Mm. when they made that film, they had no idea that milk was a bad choice or, you know, I'm trapped in a glass cage of emotion. All of those things were going to resonate and be funny outside of their editing room. Yeah. That every single line in Anchorman 2 might as well be delivered with a wink down the camera. Mm. And it did feel like the Matrix sequels were a little bit of that. It's like, oh, we know people like this. Let's do that but let's do it to fucking oblivion. Let's turn it all the way to 11. Yeah. yeah. It's like once the genie's out of the bottle, then you don't have the surprise factor anymore. So you can't do the same thing and expect the same reaction with a sequel. It has to be different or it has to be bigger. You know, it can't be the same rehashing. And you're right, comedy it absolutely never works with comedy. And I think with something like The Matrix, the whole the whole ethos of loving The Matrix is because it's something completely different and you can't be different again in the set you can't do the same thing and have that same reaction because it's not different 
you know it's you've already done it it's already there but also they i mean i think they did try and do something different it was just the choice they made was bad <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just yeah well everyone like bullet time we're just not going to do that again scrap that you yeah. know scrap yeah. get rid of that <laughs> like all the things people like we'll just dump and we'll keep all this real like mystical shit that nobody really understood and yeah that's what we'll build our franchise around shall we it was the perfect example of the emperor's new clothes you're sort of like looking around going Am I going to have to be the one that calls this out and goes, yeah. "This, this is shit." I'm sorry, guys. This is shit. Well, that's exactly what I had to do, Michael. At five o'clock in the morning, driving everyone home, like dropping them off while they're out of the car. Sorry again. <laughs> but yeah, let's move on to the worst because I think this is going to go quite smoothly into it. What is your worst ever sequel? Well, I think for me. It's the Matrix Revolutions. I think there are worse films that are sequels than yeah, the Matrix absolutely. Revolutions. That's a given. I have a particular bugbear with uh, Jaws 3 or Jaws 3D, whatever it's being called these days. <laughs> yeah, that's horrible. Partly because it's awful, but also because um, there's a sort of sequence or extended sequences where there are, I think it's SeaWorld or a version of SeaWorld in the sort of tunnel and they're trapped underwater as the shark attacks. But I, for most of my sort of child and then adult life, thought, that's what Sea World, in, in particular the Sea Life Center in Portsmouth, was like. In that, when you went and visited, you just went under the sea in this tunnel, and there would be fucking <laughs> sharks and rays and dolphins and everything. So much so that I, I didn't want to go there because I'd seen Jaws and I was scared. Eventually, I was old enough to go, and I went with my niece. Took her there, thinking this is going to be brilliant. We're going to go like completely under the water in the ocean. Not thinking logically as a grown man that like. How old were you at this that's... point? Sorry, I have to. I, just... I would have. I would have been uh, early thirties. Okay, so you should have known better. Okay, I just wanted to. I absolutely should have known better. It's the equivalent of one of your parents telling you a fact as a kid that's clearly a joke, but because your brain is still forming, you just yeah. go, "Oh right, yeah, that's what that." And then. 20 years later or university you say a thing casually in the pub and everyone turns to you and goes sorry what what <laughs> and then you explain and then in the explanation you realize oh yeah sorry my dad was pranking me when i was five years old and i've just carried that with me like my entire <laughs> life this was a sort of real world physical version of that where i took my niece in and i had hyped it up so much i was like it's gonna be like sharks swimming past us and everything and we walked in and it was just essentially a hallway with a fish tank above it with a few fucking tiny fish. And yeah. the look of disappointment and contempt on her face was just like, this guy's a loser. Like, what is this old guy? And before that, I'd been like the kind of cool uncle who would come down. It'd be all exciting. So I've got particular beef with Jaws 3 for that reason. Your explanation is brilliant because I, I lived in Portsmouth for quite a while. And I know that Sea Life Centre very well because my I have a six year old who is obsessed with all things sea creatures. So we have been to that we have been to that Sea Life Centre for quite a few times. Yeah, it's just awful. But it's probably not awful if you haven't it's seen Jaws Three. <laughs> if you want a really good one, go to Dubai and their shopping mall. That's exactly what you're describing. It sounds like you walk through a tunnel and it's you're completely surrounded. But uh, the reason why that isn't the worst sequel for me is because it doesn't matter how bad that or any of the subsequent. Jaws films. It doesn't matter how much Michael Caine tries, you can't <laughs> diminish how good a film Jaws is. Yeah. Like you can watch Jaws with complete immunity because it's a masterpiece. And I feel the same way about the first Die Hard. I sort of have a bit of a soft spot for Die Hard too, but I think that's partly some kind of Stockholm syndrome of it being on telly every week for the past 25 years. But Die Hard is still brilliant. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how many five, six, seven, eight, or however many Bruce Willis churns out. It's just such a perfect action film. 
But I think the Matrix sequels, as we've touched on, they do diminish the first Matrix. I think they really, really undermine a lot of what I personally thought that film was about and what it was trying to say and how clever and smart it was. So it's it's hard not to sort of hate the Matrix sequels the most because they ruined a thing that I really loved prior to them. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Is there a point like you just, in, in the film, you think this is just shit? I've seen it once and a bit. So I saw it at the cinema and I tried to watch it again probably a couple of years after it came out on DVD. I thought, all right, I'll give it another chance. Maybe I was in a bad mood. And I think probably 20 minutes into that, I was like, oh yeah, no, it's just all it's just all third act. It's this sort of big, bloated, pompous, boring mess. Like it looks great. Visually, it looks amazing. Because I think visually, you know, Speed Racer looks fucking amazing. Yeah. But it, it's just garbage. It barely makes sense. And, and you don't care about anyone or anything that's happening. It's kind of a cautionary tale that often I think more is less. You know, when, when Trinity is willing Neo to get up at the end of that first film, like it's such an incredible moment. You're so completely invested in the characters and what they stand for and what they believe in. And the complete opposite is the case here. I just didn't care about any of it and to go from that the sort of 10 out of 10 completely kind of game changing these guys have genuinely created new technology that has been built into the storytelling in such a way that's so innovative to the feeling of deflation when i came out of that third film i mean that should be applauded in itself <laughs> is that like watching your niece like heartbreak from <laughs> yes do you know what i experienced what she experienced yes <laughs> Well, just to let you know, if you see the fourth one, I don't think you have, have you? The new one? No, I haven't seen it yet. This no. will look like a fucking masterpiece. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. I, it genuinely will. <laughs> I watched this today because I've hated it as much as you. I watched it today and I thought, do you know what? This isn't that bad anymore. <laughs> I genuinely thought, this is actually all right. I prefer this one compared to Reloaded, I think. I like the Siege of Zion. When they're not doing all the bullshit robot crap, like, I don't know who's the one and all that. It's the fourth time they've attacked Zion. When it's just pure robots trying to get into the the hub, I thought that's really good. And then it goes on afterwards to the Superman ending when it's just Smith and Neo looking like computer game characters trying to beat the shit out of each other. It just goes too far. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Watch watch the new one and you'll love it. That's my advice, Rich. I'm going to struggle to find the time if that's your review. (laughs) Personally, I can't think of anything worse than the fourth Matrix. To be honest, um, wow! I had yeah. If I hadn't been watching it because we had to review it for this for this podcast, I would have left. I'd have walked out of the cinema. It was so bad. So it does get worse. I don't, I don't know if that's going to re-save the uh, save the trilogy for you. Watching the fourth one, and you think you'd be like Dave and go back. <laughs> well, I used to have quite strong feelings about Return of the Jedi being so vastly inferior, but. In the passing years and the prequels, I genuinely think it's a five-star film now. I absolutely (laughs) love Return of the Jedi. And and I will will forgive those little Ewoks. Would I have felt that way had it not been for the prequels? Maybe. I don't know. But yeah, maybe this is is the one that will make me look at Reloaded and Revolutions in 10 years' time and go, they weren't that bad. And maybe that's what they were trying to do all along. Maybe it's like, this is how we make our second and third movies better, by making the fourth one so incredibly bad <laughs> so what I, what I need to do then I think is take my niece to that Dubai sea world yep uh, and then that experience will be like I'll be become her return of the Jedi as an uncle and just bring it full circle how old is your niece now 
I mean, she's too old for that. It'd be, it'd be weird if me and her just went to Dubai on holiday. But, you know. I mean, it is a it is a bad film. How would The Matrix be better for you then, Michael? How would you improve it? The sequels, you mean? Yeah, let's give them a go. Yeah, I, I for me, it would be a standalone. The best comparison I can make to The Matrix sequels and the original Matrix is it's like the end of The Thing. John Carpenter's The Thing. It's left open-ended and you don't know quite what's going to happen or what could happen. And it's so much better for it that mm. you don't need to go and make sequels. You don't need to revisit it. And I know they've obviously made subsequent The Thing. It doesn't destroy the legacy of the John Carpenter one, which is undoubtedly yeah. an absolute masterpiece. You're 100% right. I'd probably like the original Matrix more if it wasn't for the sequels. So you're you're 100% just don't make them. And that's how you make yeah. it all better. Do you know what John Carpenter said today? He might be making oh. a sequel to The Thing. Oh. <laughs> John. I read it on Total <laughs> Film. He's got an idea because in his head they both survived at the end, Kurt Russell and Keith David. So right. he's got he's got an idea, but he doesn't want to put it out there what it is. I mean, I I love John Carpenter, I love Kurt Russell, but I I hope Netflix or Amazon or any of the big streaming services do not green like that. <laughs> There's no need for it at all. What is your dream sequel? So am I allowed? I don't know what the rules are here. Am I allowed a couple of? Uh, honorable mentions absolutely absolutely okay so when you asked this question my reflex answer was when harry met sally i don't know if anyone's talked about this or has had it as a as an option but i think it's it's a flawless masterpiece when harry met sally i think it's the greatest romantic comedy of all time it's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why i love new york and new york's my favorite place in the world but i think it's just everyone involved apart from maybe rob reiner who it was a run of five films for him that are just probably the best run of five films of any director if you take them kind of collectively but it's billy crystal at his best it's meg ryan at her best Nora Ephron at her best and i think it just defined an entire genre and the reason why it was my immediate response was that none i mean obviously Nora Ephron has passed away not so long ago but no one else involved in that film has done anything of any merit for quite some time i think all of their careers have been on a, a downward trajectory and not being unkind about all of them you know their legacy is untouchable i think but the idea of a when harry met sally sequel what i imagined was sort of sitting down to watch a film and knowing nothing about it coming and then you just hear on black screen the little twinkling of a piano and then harry connick jr's voice comes in and then off camera so it's still black you hear an older clearly older billy crystal and meg ryan bickering and on the title White text on black from director Rob Reiner. They're still bickering a bit more. It gets louder. And writer Nora Ephron. Nice. And then you cut to those two as they are now. Clearly still married, clearly still in love. But what a marriage and that relationship is. And then knowing that you're going to spend two hours in their company, dissecting Mm. their life and going, hey, it can work out. And yeah, it is hard work and marriages are difficult, but... When you love someone and they're your friend and you put the work in, this is how funny and charming and lovely it can be. That's a film I would queue up to watch in a heartbeat. Lovely. And I think everyone involved probably needs it. Yeah. We've had someone pick When Harry Met Sally. Very different to your idea. And they called it When Sally Left Harry. And it's oh, about- no, guys, no. <laughs> Why would you? It's the best pitch we had last season. We really enjoyed it. Um, oh. And it's like set now. It's it sounded really good. Josh Weller dropped it. Basically, I bought it just after the name. I thought that was genius. But you would you would go in the opposite direction, which is also lovely. 
if that film happened, I'd go full John Wick. Like, you might as well have killed my dog. Like, <laughs> if that's what someone chooses to do with that story and those characters, that's just wrong, man. That's just I wrong. I think at the end, they end up getting back together, though, right? I think yeah, that's, yeah, I think they in, did. In Josh's, Josh's pitch, they end up kind of, they go through this full circle and end up realising they're still in love with each other at the end. So I think you'd probably still get your ending. Okay, well, tell Josh maybe I'll spare his family, but he's, he's still going down. <laughs> I love that you had two different ideas, though. So this makes your pick quite interesting as well. A, a very quick second honourable mention. Which, of course, um, sorry. Which is uh, The Colour of Money. I think by many, well, most people consider to be a kind of lesser Scorsese. Paul Newman is playing an older version of the character that he played in The Hustler. And Tom Cruise is this mm. kind of like young upstart who is hustling on the sort of pool halls in, I think it's sort of like Chicago area. I genuinely think it's a, a brilliant film. But it's a film that was probably made about 10 years too late. So by the mid-80s, I think it's 86, it felt very much like the sort of thing that William Friedkin or, you know, Altman or someone like those guys would have made in 1976. This kind of grubby, gritty character study about redemption. But it's most famously known because obviously Paul Newman won the Academy Award for it when he Mm. should have won the Academy Award four or five times prior to that, be it Butch yeah. Cassidy, be it Hard. You know, there's a number of films where he probably should have won. Now, my Color of Money sequel basically transplants Tom Cruise into the Paul Newman role, and Cruise wins his Academy Award for this when he should have won Magnolia, when he should have won it for Jerry Maguire, perhaps even Born on the Fourth of July, you know. And but- Mission Impossible 7, or 5, <laughs> whatever we're on now. <laughs> Uh, and I'm a big fan of Tom Cruise. I think he's genuinely a brilliant, brilliant film star. And I know he gets a lot of stick because uh, he's mental. off camera. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he makes some questionable life choices. But you you won't see a more committed film star than Tom Cruise. And I don't just mean kind of physically and stunt. He gives everything to every single role. But this feels like a Martin Scorsese-directed Colour of Money sequel where an ageing Tom Cruise, and I and I think Tom Cruise would have to play his age in this. Mm. Let the wrinkles, let the sag set in, let people kind of see that time's taken its toll. And then someone yeah. else that comes in and is a sort of young upstart. I can't imagine the pool hustling scene is particularly big anymore. Um, so you'd have to sort of think of the mechanics of like what it is that they they did. I always thought The Colour of Money was a sequel to The Hustler. Yeah, I always it's put Dan to it Weird well. that it's not. Well, it, it technically <laughs> it is, is, it's, it is. It's the same character. All right, okay. He is Fast Eddie Felton. Right, okay. I like that idea. I like the idea of seeing Tom Cruise play his age, if nothing else. It's about time he did that. And yeah, you're right. That could be his Oscar. If he does do that, it would be such a departure for him that that could be his, his Oscar. Well, when Tom Cruise acts, he actually he can act. And it's always mm. nice to see him do it. Um, so yeah, I, I'd like to see that. Would you? Did you say Scorsese to stay the director or just producing? Who would you? I'd like to see Scorsese. Yeah, I'd like to see him take the reins again. Who would you like to see be the Young Apprentice? I think it'd have to be someone unknown. I think one of the issues, one of the problems that the Color of Money had, is that when they shot that film, Tom Cruise wasn't Tom Cruise. I think he had mm. just done um, what's the the Coppola gang film the outsiders outsiders yeah um outsiders but he hadn't he was filming uh top gun at the same time or straight after but then top gun came out before the color of money and sort of blew him up basically so that when the color of money came along it's like well what what the fuck is this but i think you'd want to cast someone who who wasn't 
known who perhaps star was on on the ascendancy who that is you know i i don't know but i, I don't think you'd want to you, you wouldn't want to put a name in there no lovely i'd watch that and what's your final choice so my actual dream sequel and someone else has had this before I, I checked with you guys beforehand and i didn't want to tread on anyone's toes and sort of you know talk about the same thing but there's a very specific reason for this is uh, uh leon the luke Besson action film with uh, jean renault and Natalie Portman and uh, the reason I've picked this and I had gone back this weekend so this weekend just gone was uh, the big storms I mean obviously nip this out if it's going to timestamp the episode uh, when it goes out but basically I was due to go back to the Isle of Wight and see my family at the weekend and somewhere in the loft at my mum's house uh, from my first semester at film school is a beat sheet mapping out the story and plot points and a few sample scenes for Leon 2 that I wrote in my first year of film school. Now, sadly, because of the storm, I couldn't get back to the Isle of Wight. The trains and the ferries got cancelled, so I didn't get a chance to rummage around for it. It's been in there since 2002. So, you know, it's been sat in a box in the loft for, for 20 years. And I was quite excited to dig it out and have some fun sort of going through. So I'm sort of running this from 20-year-old memory. But basically, uh, my pitch was that I had taken the basic structure of The Godfather Part 2 in that you would see and spend time with an older Natalie Portman. And what had happened mm. is over the ensuing years, she had risen up and trained herself basically to become an assassin with the ultimate end game of getting vengeance for the people responsible and i don't just mean the people responsible as in um, gary oldman who's obviously killed at the end of the film but the guy who plays um his friend who uh, owns like the deli yeah, yeah basically he's the one that gives him up he's the one that betrays yeah. him in the film and she knows that she knows that they're responsible but he's kind of plugged into a much bigger and wider kind of new york mobster underground infrastructure so her half of the film is sort of her training seeing how good she is and then slowly taking those guys down but then the flip side of that a bit like the de niro side where you meet the young vito corleone who becomes the godfather of marlon brando is that you meet a young jean reno who at the time is in the french resistance because he's a sort of uh like french kind of algerian immigrant who Nice. Uh, he has no education. He's come from a sort of very poor background. You know, he can't read, he can't write. His basically only thing is to train to, you know, become a killer, to become a military guy. But mm. while he's there, he he falls in love with the wife of a senior officer who then they get in an affair with. And he ends up killing this guy. Um, I hadn't worked out. It was probably going to be in some sort of clumsy, like self-defense slash he was a bad guy. He was mistreating her and Leon came to her defense. But he has to go on the run and skips out of the French resistance, goes on the run to America. And then we track him working his way up and sort of, you know, he's on the streets. He's basically homeless. He's got no contact. He doesn't speak the language. He can't read or write. And it's his kind of story. And you end, the film eventually ends with the opening shot of the original Leon, which is this sort of oh. lovely helicopter shot over the water into sort of through yeah. New York City. But it's the first time that Leon walks up to the door of the deli and meets the guy who then sort of becomes his kind of handler and the guy who gives him the contracts. Just before that, you've seen Natalie Portman essentially wipe them all out, including him. So there's this nice kind of like full circle where you see the beginning and the end of each of their narratives. Oh, that's that's Love it. Clever. 
I think I think you know if there'd been a competition, then I think you might have just won with the uh, with the idea there. <laughs> I love that. I, I would I'd pay very good money to watch that movie. I'm really sorry, Tim from the sequelizers who also picked Leon, but yeah, sorry, this wins. <laughs> I like them both. I'm going to stay absolutely neutral. Um, would you keep Luke Besson as as a director, or is there a director you would think would would be great. Ooh, I mean, I, if anyone's hiring Luke Besson now, I, I might as well say, <laughs> just hire Roman Polanski. It's like, <laughs> I think he should not be hired for uh, moral reasons, but also I, I just don't think he's a particularly effective director anymore. So I think you'd want to bring someone new on board. Catherine Bigelow, maybe. Only because I've just watched Point Break. <laughs> oh, I'd love to see a Leon sequel directed by Catherine Bigelow. Yeah, 100%. How would you go bigger as a bad guy? So Sal's a bad guy, but would you have a someone else as well? And how do you go bigger than Gary Oldman? Well, you can't, you can't go bigger than Gary Oldman in that film. It's, it's, <laughs> I'd say it's literally impossible. So I think you'd probably have to steer away from that completely because i think others would pale in comparison Mm -hmm. Um, i don't know i think you'd probably have to introduce someone who was higher up the food chain than than sal because he seems sort of fairly low rent and it's i think she sort of ends up uncovering a kingpin style new york person and then you you cast someone who is going to be completely different but is also going to kind of dominate that side of the film in in the same way i think if you tried to get anyone to go toe-to-toe with gary oldman in that film you'd be a maniac yeah, that would be insane to watch. Even someone try. Oh, he's so good in that movie. Yeah, he's amazing. I, mean, I, know, I know his character is on drugs, but at some points I'm thinking, this guy is definitely on coke as well to go this big. It's <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Thank you very much, Michael. No, absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. This is this is. I was thinking about it. This is my first actual podcast appearance. I've been on podcasts as a producer and had to speak, but this is the first time I've come on as an actual guest. So, so thanks for popping my cherry, guys. Wow, That's, you're welcome. I knew it because I, I remember you telling the story on quickly, Kevin, how you went to your uh, blockbuster, your last ever blockbuster or something, and thought he likes films. Yes, yeah, yeah. I went on a pilgrimage to. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was one of the one of the best two days of my life. I'm not going <laughs> to. Uh, it's a three-day detour to Bend, Oregon from LA because I heard there was one blockbuster in the world left. I was like, great. Yep, that's me for the next three days. <laughs> Brilliant. So what's the last blockbuster like? Is it just like a normal blockbuster or have they made it kind of... I think they had, have deliberately kept it similar to what it was like as an experience in the kind of 90s and noughties. So you know the scene where the critic samples the Ratatouille in Ratatouille? Yeah. Mm. I, when I walked in there was this sort of transportation back to being 16, 17 years old on the Isle of Wight because I'm fairly certain if the carpet wasn't identical, all of the kind of iconography, all of like the colour palette, everything else just hadn't changed. And the joy that I experienced just walking around that place, oh, it was just, it was unparalleled. It was like like a sort of grown-up Disneyland. (laughs) Could you rent something? Uh, I I didn't rent anything because I didn't have a membership. um, And I wasn't there for long enough to get one. But they did, obviously, they know a lot of tourists come along. So you can buy a sort of like fake membership there where they put your name and sort of print out the, the membership. One of the things that made me laugh while I was there was they had like for sale bins, you know, where they're selling off like the X-Rental and the dead stock. Yeah, yeah. And some of the stuff they were selling was old American VHSs. Who in 2000 and what would have been 19 or 18? Who is still buying VHSs? There's a reason why you guys have gone out of business. Like, this is absolutely insane that you're giving up floor space to the idea that someone would buy a 50 cents copy of Tin Cup. But, but I bought it as a souvenir. 
was going to say, uh, amazing. There's, there's some hipster in Hoxton somewhere who's going, yeah, I only watch VHSs, man, because they're like, you know, they've got that cool edge to them, you know, the extra grittiness. <laughs> I don't stream. I just watch VHSs. <laughs> I mean, if, if that happens, I'm all for the vinyl revolution, but if people start watching stuff on VHS, then yeah, game's <laughs> That'd gone. That'd be a bizarre show. Yeah, I don't get that. 4K all the way now. People are back buying cassette tapes, you know, it's going to happen. <laughs> but why? I know, I know. <laughs> and those were Michael Marden's unequal sequels. What a lovely man. The man loves films, doesn't he? He does, he does. Oh, he's knowledgeable. Film yeah, school and all that. Absolutely. And I love that he went to the last ever blockbuster. In in America, that's a, that's a cracker. I w- I'd love to do that one day. That's commitment, isn't it? It is. Yeah, that's some serious commitment. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm yeah. impressed. I'm really impressed. I also loved that he came on a podcast about sequels, where he got to he would be able to pick about any sequel he wanted, <laughs> and he thought other people would have picked Godfather Two yeah. or Empire Strikes Back, so he picked Young Guns Two. And do you know what? Thanks for that because I don't think anyone else is ever going to pick that. No, uh, no. It's a good movie. It's it a good movie. It's a good movie. I enjoyed it. When he found out that no one's picked those other two yet. <laughs> we could have been talking about Godfather Part 2. <laughs> could have been talking about Empire Strikes Back. But no. Young no. Guns 2. Love We're it. We're talk about that Bon Jovi-based <laughs> cowboy film. Again. Oh, I like that. I like the soundtrack. It's a great soundtrack. <laughs> it's a fun movie. It is a fun movie. And I get why he picked it. I like. I mean, it. I get why because of the memories and how he, yeah, yeah. you know, what he holds and how he holds it. But Billy the Kid is not a nice guy, and I didn't warm to him at all. No. And I hadn't seen Young Guns One. Uh, oh, yeah, and I, I still can. haven't seen Young Guns One. Young Gun, Young it's Guns worth One. Worth watching, mate. It's worth watching. You should get. You should go and watch it. Yeah. You know, not that you get a chance because we're just watching sequels all the time these days. But you know, that is my life now. <laughs> uh, and then we got to talk about a Matrix Revolutions. I mean, completely agree. Like it's. It's not good. Still hold up. It's not the worst. The seconds. Oh, actually, I don't know anymore about the Matrixes. They're just mm. everything after one is not good. That's the that's that's all you need to know, really. The Matrix is a brilliant standalone film, and then five good scenes <laughs> after that. That's it. Yeah. End, end of story. <laughs> then the dream sequel. We got to talk about Leon again, and when Harry Castella he mentioned again. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, on a on a par with Josh Weller, there both having a very kind of yeah you know, strong ideas for when Harry met Sally, but, but different, different ideas, yeah, different ideas. I like that, but and yeah, and also but a very similar similar pick for Leon, I think. Um, yes, it's it's different from the previous one we've had. Yeah, because it was like a, a Godfather two flavored that we saw the Jean Renault character mm, yeah. and how he came to be Leon. Um, which was a little bit different from Tim from Sequelizers, who also picked Leon. Me, which had no John Renault, and it was all Natalie Portman oh, yeah, kicking off. Natalie Portman, which. But what's so good about Michael is that he wrote this in like film school. This idea, so it's <laughs> somewhere in his mum and dad's loft. Yeah, there is a script. There is a script, and it's percolated for a long time. You can tell he's he's thought about that for a long time, and he. He was. He was just great to have on the podcast. Gave us lots of great advice as well. So thank you for that. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he really did. 
and he is uh, great. yeah if you've if you've come over from one of his other podcasts um to to come and listen to him on this podcast thank you for doing that we really hope you stick with us because this is quite a good podcast too you know if you like movies if you like funny people then this is the place to be but not saying we're funny people we're funny oh, looking no. but you know we we have funny people and very knowledgeable people as guests on these uh on these episodes so if you do like what you hear if you have joined us for the first time then don't forget to go and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts if it's google if it's apple if it's spotify then hit that little subscribe button and you'll get to hear us every week sometimes twice a week because we have an extra episode on a friday which is a shorter episode no guest well, sometimes a guest we're adding a few extra guests into into the mix and then we talk about other sequel news that we've got coming up you know good movies anniversaries sometimes do a ranking yeah they're fun episodes so make sure you listen to those if you've just tuned in for this one we've got two other series worth to go and listen to so make sure you go back and listen to series one series two we've got some brilliant guests on there like we've mentioned guys from the sequelizers we've got guys from the cinemile brilliant movie podcasts we've also got comedians like sean walsh and nick helm and josh weller with brilliant brilliant guests for you to go back to listen to um so please do that and when you're there if you fancy writing us a little review if that if you get your podcast from a place that allows that we'd love that please give us a little a little cheeky review just let us know if you enjoyed it that would be lovely click give us a five stars or a heart or a thumbs up or any of those little icons that you get that would be really great as well we'd really appreciate it and also if you want to get in touch we're on on social media so we're at unequal sequel on twitter and on instagram and you can even send us an email unequal sequel at hotmail.com say hello we love that we do love it uh, i just want to say thank you for listening uh, we do appreciate every everyone that has listened. You're all brilliant. We love you very much. Uh, go listen to Michael's podcast, uh, Quickly Kevin. It is fantastic, especially if you like 90s football and Championship Manager oh, and that kind of thing. It's so good. Uh, it, it's it's Minor Rich's era, so it's so good. Yes. Uh, listen to Parents in Hell. You probably, everyone does anyway, because it's fucking brilliant as well. It's hilarious. <laughs> uh, but carry on listening to us. We will be back next week. So it is a... Bye from me. Oh, that was a long one. Yep. And a bye from him. Bye. Have a lovely week. We'll see you next time. Bye.